0: if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, we are working our way. Just started last week, uh, uh, really picking up where we left off last year in our study of the life of David. Uh, 2 Samuel 1 is found on page 274 of your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you. Um, and we can even get another Bible to you if you would like. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1 uh, originally, our plan was to finish this chapter, but I did that thing again. We're only going to make it through one verse, so um, we'll be here long enough. But uh, we would be here significantly longer if we didn't stop after one verse. Second Samuel chapter one. If you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word, we'll look at verse seventeen. We'll read verse seventeen and eighteen for context, but really just want to highlight seventeen. The writer of Second Samuel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our minds, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we would take your word, be transformed by it. And we would see our city transformed by the power of your gospel. But let that begin right here. We're confronted with raw emotions here in this text. A soon-to-be king who is more than loss of a dear friend and his king and everything else. May we learn from his example as we go through this process of grief. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May we be seated. Perhaps the most unlikely of marriages in Christian history was between Martin Luther and Katie von Bora. Their story of romance is not the best story of romance, at least if you're trying to turn into a Hollywood movie. Um, Katie von Bora fled out of a nunnery to Wittenberg, uh, her and about a dozen other nuns, in whiskey barrels. They were smothered out and found themselves into Wittenberg, the heart of the German Reformation, really of the European Reformation. And there met Martin Luther. At this point, Luther's name was world-renowned, and and a lot of nuns and monks were coming to Wittenberg uh, uh, wanting to to restart their lives. And here come these nuns, and Luther found himself being quite the matchmaker. And he would find husbands for these nuns and wives for the monks, and and he, he seemed to enjoy it quite a bit. There was one of these nuns who he just couldn't get rid of. He tried multiple times to find a suitable husband for Katie. No one wanted her. So he decided, I am out of options. I guess I'll have to marry her. (laughs) Luther was hesitant to get married for many years because the Pope and the King wanted him dead. Why get married whenever there is uh, capital punishment hanging over your head? But nevertheless, he, he married her. And uh, they did not marry because they were infatuated with each other. Luther was very open that he was not infatuated with her. He mostly did it so that he can make the Pope more angry at him. But nevertheless, they, they get married, and um, Luther had to learn the hard way uh, what going from a bachelor to being married was, was like. Um, he would eventually declare about his Katie, I would not exchange Katie for France or for Venice, for God has given her to me, and other women have worse faults. Let me tell you, (laughs) men, on your anniversary card, put that on there, right? I wouldn't trade you for anything, because this is the best of a bad situation, right? That's a man of romance, But he did have to give up his lifelong experience with being a bachelor. And he realized that marriage required a lot of adjustments. Some of my favorite quotes from him. He says, before I was married, the bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweats. But I worked so hard and was so weary, I tumbled in without noticing. Let me tell you, the average man today, he don't need to be that tired in order for his bed to smell and look and feel like that. I'm just going to warn you young ladies right now. My wife's favorite quote, I believe, from Luther at this time says, there's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow which were not there before. My wife loves that quote. Well, with marriage, of course, comes children. At least that's what we used to sing whenever I was a child. And he and Katie eventually had six children in all. One child in particular held his heart. Her name was Magdalena. And unfortunately, when she was 14 years old, his sweet Magdalena passed away. Oh God, he prayed, I love her so, he cried as she lied there dying. His wife was so distraught as her final breaths were being taken that Katie just stood off in the distance and cried. Luther, on the other hand, held his little girl in his arms and wept as she faded into the next life. The two, as you can imagine, went into a period of deep depression. In one telling letter to a close friend and colleague, Luther wrote, quote, I believe the report has reached you that my dearest daughter Magdalena has been reborn in the Christ eternal kingdom. I and my wife should joyfully give thanks for such a fel- felicitous departure and blessed end by which Magdalena escaped the power of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Yet the force of our natural love is so great that we are unable to do this without crying and grieving in our hearts, or even without experiencing death ourselves. The features, the words, and the movements of the living and dying daughter remain deeply engraved in our hearts. Their marriage didn't start out in love, but it soon blossomed into one. And in that home of love, Luther and his wife experience deep, an abiding loss that would be with them for the rest of their days. We can all relate to Luther here, can't we? Chances are you're here, and when you hear Luther's story, someone comes to mind, a loss you've experienced, suffering you're still struggling with, a moment in your life that still haunts you. And what we have in this text is King David, who didn't hold grudges, he didn't want to fight back, But when he discovered that his king had tragically been killed, he responded with justice, yes, but he responds with grief. When he learns the news that his best friend in this world, Jonathan, is killed in battle, he responds with great sorrow. And before we can look at this lament that is found here, and we will certainly do that, Lord willing, next week, I think it's important for us to pause and consider the fact that what we have here is the man in whom the text says is a man after God's own heart experiences deep loss and sorrow. Before we can look at how he responds, I think it is worth pausing to consider that he responds, that he experiences grief. So can we start here? And that is that grief is universal. Grief is universal. So before we can engage with this psalm itself, it is best that we start with the obvious. It is so obvious we are often blinded by it. David, a righteous man, is grieving. Now, numerous characters in the Bible, if we had the time, we could look at several examples that experienced grief from Jeremiah all the way to Jesus. Numerous high-profile Christians without histories, heroes of the faith, have struggled with depression stemming from sorrow and grief. Perhaps most notable is what happened on October 19, 1856 in London, England. Newlywed man was preaching at a very large congregation. He was a guest speaker at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall when suddenly in the middle of a sermon, someone yelled, fire, 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 which caused a rampage and a major stampede that left several people dead. The preacher went through a period of deep depression. His name was Charles Spurgeon. Arguably, and I think rightly considered the greatest preacher at least baptism ever produced, perhaps in the history of the church. Part of the problem was that the British press blamed him for the tragedy, which only added to his despair. A month later, he returned to his church to preach the first sermon since that event. He opens with this, quote, I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe. But on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning if I make no allusion to that solemn event, or scarcely any, I could not preach to you upon a subject that should be in the least allied to it. I shall not attempt to preach upon this text. I shall only make a few remarks that have occupied my mind, uh, for I could not preach today. I have been utterly unable to study, but I thought that even a few words might be acceptable to you this morning. And I trust to your loving hearts to excuse them. One of the things that we need to see here with David or other biblical characters and and examples throughout church history like with Spurgeon is to see the presence of suffering, the presence of sorrow never negates God's love. Spurgeon would rather reflect on his continuing uh, 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 fight with depression. He He would say that the road to sorrow has been well trodden. It is the regular sheep track to heaven all the flock of God have had to pass through it. So, so we may take for granted that sometimes bad things happen to people. But what we need to see here is that suffering is part of our experience in this fallen world. And that does not mean God has forsaken us or that he does not love us. Secondly, what we need to see here is that grief is a process. Chances are you have woken up on the anniversary of a loved one's death or date of their birthday, the date of your wedding, depressed or in grief. Maybe it's a holiday. Maybe it's a special event, and you feel their absence more than, than those other days. Maybe you're wondering why after all these years, you just can't seem to get over it. The reason for this another other common experience that we go through this is because we Americans... We don't take time to grieve. The pressure all around us is to get over our burdens. You, you, you get time off from work to, 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 for your loved one to pass away, and then you, you do the funeral, and then you eat the dinner, and then you're expected the next day or two to go back to work and act like everything is okay. I've always found that to be bizarre, especially when you consider that throughout the Bible, alone human experience, that was never the case. Whenever Moses died, and earlier when Aaron died, the people of Israel mourned for 40 days. 40 days. Our ancestors in Europe and elsewhere, they would mourn for 30 days or more, have a period of mourning and, and say, I, I'm not coming in the work. I'm not going to engage in, in, in the daily events of culture. I'm going to take time to mourn. But in our fast-paced society, we're just expected to get over it. And so whenever we're in that family context, it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or whenever we're out in public and, and we, we, we assume this person just needs to grow up. They just need to get over it because of their, 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 their emotional reaction to things. Without ever considering, have we ever taken the, the, the process of grief seriously? Look, grief is a process. It is not a program. The way you process grief is more complicated than the seven stages of grief. I'm not saying I'm against all of that. A lot of that is quite helpful. But to think, that okay, I'm in stage three. Okay, tomorrow I'll be in stage four. Let's hurry this thing up. Can I get depressed already? Rather, it is a process, and there are steps forward, and there are steps back, and there are questions that we struggle with, and maybe we weren't asking before, and and, and at times it gets frustrating. What matters most in this process is that we anchor our hope, and we find healing rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentator commentated on this passage I found quite helpful, said, quote, "The, the sorrows and wounds... Uh, of God's people received from their losses are not miraculously healed after a short time of emotional catharsis. And sometimes in the church there is such an impatience with grief. Why isn't Alan over Carol's death or Connie over Tom since it's been 18 months? Why can't that mother get beyond the death of her 10-year-old? But the lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep and ongoing and it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief in words that convey our anguish in images that picture our despair, in written prayers that verbalize despondency. Why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? I love that. But I want us to spend most of our time here in verse 17, where David, it says, lamented a lament. This is a a deep expression of sorrow and the Process he went to 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 pin this song a song he teaches so so consider that here we have David he doesn't just write a poem and stick it in his journal and put it under his mattress and and, and no one found out to after his death rather he took time in in, in in solitude to to write and to adequately express his emotions and then he he joined others in that expression and they sang it so so to, to memorialize King uh, King Saul and, and his family but also. As a process of his grieving. One other thing I think we need to see in these verses is that grief is spiritual. Immediately we are confronted with what sort of psalm he pins here. David pins a laments. That's a term we've heard of. We just don't know what it means. In fact, the first time I remember hearing the word laments was in the hairbrush song by VeggieTales. Now I grew up hearing about lamentations and everything else, but whenever I think it's Bob the Tomato, having heard his lament, Bob expressed, right? And he goes into his, uh, where is my hairbrush? But the word lament has a rich theological and biblical context. Although it's a lost art in the Christian West, lamentations were a vital art form for grief and for healing. A lamentation, we could say, is a vehicle of the mind and the emotions. It is a prayer to God expressing the honesty of our hearts. And it is often expressed in a formal prayer or a psalm to God. Can I just give you a few characters in the Bible? There's, we, 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 could, we could spend weeks on this one subject. In fact, maybe sometime we'll go through the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah was a man who lamented. I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastors of the wilderness. Ezekiel, the prophet, does the same. And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. This is a lamentation. It has become a lamentation. Then there's, of course, the entire book of lamentations, right? Guess what the book of lamentations is? It's not about how to live your best life now. It's about how to grieve appropriately given the context. Hear this word that I take up over you, a lamentation, house of Israel. Micah the prophet, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, mourning like the ostriches. Notice the, the vivid imagery you'll see in all of these. What about the church in the book of Acts following the execution of Stephen? Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Again, there is the entire book of lamentations, dedicated to godly sorrow. Is it nothing to you that all who pass by look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? Likewise, later he adds, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And again, to eleven, my eyes are spent with weeping, My stomach churns, my bile is is poured out the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies fade in the street of the city. And here, what does David do? He laments, he laments. The great error we make in our sorrow is our failure to cry out to God amid our sorrow. God is not aware of our sufferings. God is not distant from our cries. He is not callous toward our pain. What we must choose is godly sorrow over worldly sorrow. And there is a difference. And in my years, decades of of ministry, what I see is often we choose worldly sorrow and the despair that it feeds rather than the godly sorrow and the hope that it gives us. Let us look in the time that remains the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow begins, first of all, is that it turns us inward. How often do we hear the hurting, blame the deceased for the death? you ever noticed that? I've done a lot of funerals where, where we even in the funeral itself. The, 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 the expression of anger and, and hurt and bitterness has come out and blaming them for leaving me. Right? You ever heard this? Maybe you've done this right? Why would they leave me? What about a, a little girl, a little boy? Like, why did daddy have to leave us, right? This is an expression of sorrow that comes from, the, the, from, from grieving inwardly, It's the feeling of abandonment, and it is to be expected. Yet what worldly sorrow does is it turns us inside. We convince ourselves that I and I alone are the one who experienced this. I and I alone am the one that has been abandoned. I and I alone have have dealing with this pain. My pain is worse than your pain, and my sorrow is too great, and my life is too difficult, and and you'll never understand it. So when we feel the pressure of people saying it's, it's time to move, forward? How do we respond? Well, you can say that because you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how it feels to me. And so we turn inside and it is there where we sink and where we choose to live. And and that is the beginning of unhealthy grief. Chances are, in your family, perhaps in your household, at your place of, of business and employment, what you find are those who have, have turned their grief inwardly and they've been, they've been rotted from the inside and they've never been the same person. Worldly grief turns us inside. Worldly grief leads to isolation. One leads to the other, you see? Inward sorrow leads naturally to isolation. How many people struggle with crowds? How many of us avoid holiday gatherings? or won't pick up our phone because of grief. God did not create us to be alone. I think one of the things we have discovered with the COVID pandemic is it is teaching us and continues to teach us that isolation is as dangerous to the soul as a virus is to the body. John Street in his daily breakpoint, I recommend it to you. He picked up where Chuck Colson left off. Quote, a recent Census Bureau survey of 42,000 adults found that 24% of respondents showed clinical signs of severe depression and 30% showed signs of anxiety. According to the study, the rate of anxiety and depression were highest among young adults, women, and the poor. To put these numbers in better context, half of American adults said they have had felt depressed during the pandemic, while only a quarter reported similar feelings in a survey done six years prior. No mask can save us from depression that isolation causes. It spreads deep inside the soul. And when we choose to to pound our soul with grief, and we do it alone, thinking that we are alone, we will choose to be alone. And this leads thirdly and finally with worldly sorrows that we will settle for hopelessness. Loneliness feeds hopelessness no one can understand what it is that i'm going through no one knows what it's like to lose what i've lost no one understands what it is i'm trying to express such hopelessness expresses itself with depression social anxiety constant fear more isolation perpetual resentment pessimism anger bitterness the list could go on and on and on Left unchecked and unresolved years can pass and people may forget the cause of such bitterness. We simply become bitter and angry people because we are bitter and angry people. There's a good biblical example of this. There's a woman in the book of Ruth, remember Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who they, they they leave Bethlehem, the house of bread, because there is no house of bread in the house of bread, right? Bethlehem means house of bread. And they go to Moabites. And we, we talk about the Moabites Wednesday night, won't we, with uh, the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. But there, you remember what happened? She loses her husband and her two sons, and she returns back to Bethlehem with one of her daughter-in-laws. You remember what Naomi does? Everyone greets her. Hey, Naomi, what's happened? You've aged because of her grief. Remember, she said, my name's not Naomi, my name's Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitter. She chose to be bitter. Her entire identity became that of bitterness, and bitterness because of the loss. Well, that is worldly sorrow. There is a better way rooted in the gospel, and that is godly sorrow. Notice, first of all, godly sorrow turns us upward. It turns us upward. In moments of despair, you can either turn inwardly for hope or you can turn to Christ for hope. I can tell you one of them will work. Both will be hard, both will lead us down paths that will be painful a path of sorrow, a path of tears, and a path of of hurts. But only one offers you comfort and love. It is no accident that David responds to the news of Israel's defeat and the death of Saul and Jonathan with a prayer of lament. It is a prayer. Although, yes, it is addressed to Israel. I believe you'll see it in verse 19. It is first written in a prayer. He expresses to God, this is what I am seeing. This is what I am experiencing. This is how it is. You see, turning upward amid our sorrows and grief does not mean we have all the answers. We out to God knowing that what we need, first and foremost, are not answers but comfort. This is consistent with the Bible. Let me give you just, just a few examples. i give you a thousand more. Oh, I, I didn't put them up there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, why should I not fear? The shepherd's with me. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor heavy laden, I will give you rest. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Isaiah 49, 13, sing for joy, O heavens, exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, in the singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirits. Turning inward cuts the lifeline of comfort and joy. Turning upward draws us to the source of comfort and joy. I don't know if you've ever read the book. I've referenced it many times before, but it's the most significant book probably ever written in English in, in the church, and that is of course John Bunyan's *Pilgrim's Progress*. I didn't really believe, before *Purpose Driven of Life*, it remained the, the greatest selling English Christian book. You, uh, you can Google that and see what CNN says. But there's a great scene: Christian and I believe Hopeful. I think I think I think it's his friend's name. I, I can have his friend's name wrong, but Christian is there. They are in Doubting Castle. It's a dungeon. And they're chained, and the giant of despair comes and, and tortures them. And, and, and he, he begs them, just end your life now. There's no point in living. And he just pounds that message upon them. Here they are under giant despair in Doubting Castle, and they're ready to give up. Until finally, Christian realizes he has a key. He has a key right there in his pocket. And he pulls out, and it's called the key of promise. He realizes, what a fool I've been. I had on my person the entire time the key to getting out of despair. If only I had learned to use it. So he and hopeful, escape. Not with something new, but with something they already had. Godly sorrow turns us upward. Which then, notice the difference here. It will lead us to solitude. Now, here, you think solitude and isolation are synonyms. They are very different. They are very different. Isolation is meditation upon our sorrow. Solitude is meditation upon the mercies of God, even amid our sorrow. You see the difference? isolation will sink you ever deeper into your soul. And what you find there isn't joy, it isn't comfort, it isn't hope, it isn't salvation. But if you turn to solitude, you will meditate upon the mercy of Christ. Can I prove this to you? This is a spiritual discipline. We've talked about it in the past. Matthew 6, 6, I I, I didn't put it up there. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father sees you. Luke 5.15, But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear Jesus. And if he, if he had a Twitter account, he would have sold books, right? Come to my YouTube page and, and be sure to click on those ads. What does Jesus do? He chooses solitude. He would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Notice there, the places are desolate, but he is not. He is not. Luke 6.12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer to God. First Kings nineteen, you remember the story of Elijah, right? What happens is he has this great mountaintop experience. Literally at the top of the mountain, he calls on fire from heaven, which is Awesome, right? Every little boy's dream is to figure out how to do that. Elijah did, and 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 all the prophets of of Ashtoreth and Baal died. What happens? One person is trying to seek his life. One person wants to ruin his life. It's amazing. All the nation can love him, but that one person drives into despair. You remember what Elijah does? He goes to the mountain of God to encounter God. He goes to solitude. There, the Lord nourishes him. Psalm sixty-two five. For God alone, on my soul wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Psalm 46 10 Be still. You know the rest. Know that I am God. It's amazing. We skip the first two words, don't we? Hey, Americans, always busy and always have to have noise. Stop. Be still. And know you ain't God. You're not the source of your comfort and hope, you are not your salvation. Solitude is a spiritual discipline. Throughout history, societies recognize these periods of mourning because the ancients understood that solitude is part of grief and sorrow. Isolation says, I am alone. Solitude says, I am hidden in Christ. One other thing to mention here regarding godly sorrow. It settles for hope in Christ. Those who suffer well Suffer in hope. The day will come when Christ himself will wipe the tears from every eye. And the God who will wipe away our tears is the God who does the same even now. Rooted in the gospel, we hope in Christ that he is the source of our comforts, and that he will heal us from our griefs and sorrow. He, after all, like us, experienced sorrow. You realize how unique that is among real religions? Every religion is a guy who had some esoteric and mystical experience in a cave or out by himself or while he's treasure hunting, whatever it is. And he comes and says, let me tell you what God told me. Jesus comes. And in the source of our faith is not a triumph the way the world sees triumph. It is suffering. It is sorrow. It is death. Christ himself, God in human flesh, and there he cries out to God, he turns to God. There he, he, he is alone and in solitude. And so he cries out to him more. And there he shows us how to grieve. You will betray me, he warns the disciples, but I am not alone. I will die, but I will live with hope. That is why we sing by Philip Blitz, right? Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to proclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. See, the question isn't if you will suffer grief. But what will you do when that day comes? Maybe you are right now in that process. Maybe right now you sense it's at the door. Maybe right now you're reflecting on a year, three, ten years ago. How will we respond? The good news of the gospel is that we have a Savior who takes upon his nail-pierced hands. He takes our sorrows upon himself. He wraps the arms that only a shepherd can. Gives us the comfort and hope we need. You see, when Luther buried his little girl, he exclaimed, My little lights, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. How strange it is to know that she is at peace and all is well. And yet to be so sorrowful. The good news of Christ is that in him, We shall have peace. What is it that we sing that we so often forget its meaning? What a friend we have in Jesus. All my griefs and pains to bear. If only we carry to him everything in prayer. I don't know what your needs are this morning. I don't know where the Lord has you, but I beg of you, wherever you are, come to Christ. There you will find rest for your weary soul. Let's pray.